The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Mr. Paul Hanley. I met Mr. Hanley at a conference in Saskatchewan, Canada, and he spoke about a book that he recently authored titled Eleven, and it concerns the 11 billion people who will share this planet by century's end. And Mr. Hanley has been an author of a weekly column in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix since 1989. He is the author of two books and thousands of articles on the environment and agriculture and other related topics. So, Mr. Hanley, without further ado, welcome. Thanks so much, Melinda. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, what a delight to hear you speak in Canada. And I should let everyone know that was the Organic Connections Conference there were a slate of excellent speakers, and you were among them. And I was so entranced by the work that you had synthesized that I knew not only did I want to read your book fully, but I also wanted to have you share some of your wisdom with our guests. So let's just start with why did you write this book and why now? Well, I've been uh, writing on environmental issues for 25 years, more than that, 35 years, I guess now. And so I guess I built up a knowledge base and was prepared to write something more in-depth. And my concern was many of the articles I write about are about wonderful alternatives and options that people are trying all over the world to make this a better place, more sustainable, more just. But what I was finding is that so few of these options are being taken up on a large scale all over the world, and it's frustrating, and I wondered why. So, in a sense, my book, Eleven, is an effort to kind of delve in and understand what are some of the blocks that are keeping us back from doing these progressive things, which seem to work so well. Mm-hmm. What are some of those blocks? Well, I think it's a, it's a matter of the way our culture is structured which, you know, is focused on materialism and the ideas of economic growth, the acquisition of power and so on, really drive the culture. And that creates blocks often to doing the right thing. I think there's a kind of a a web of illusions that is sometimes kind of drawn through our, our media, our entertainment, even the way maybe we design our cities, the way things are laid out, the type of architecture we have. And all of these things, in a sense, are training us to operate under a certain type of value system that's really not in our best interests. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of thing that I'm trying to point out and promote a different kind of value system. Well, I think that with all the bad news that we hear so often every day in the media, and there's such a generation of fear and angst, that your book, gives us such a fresh perspective on just as you say there are examples worldwide where people are making it so that 11 billion people really can inhabit the earth but we do have to change these 
inner landscapes as well as outer landscapes, and that was something that you spoke about at the conference in Canada. And I wonder if you can describe a little bit about how those landscapes from the outside affect our innerscapes. Yeah, I talk about Harold Welser, who who wrote a very interesting essay on mental infrastructures, what he calls mental infrastructures. He talks about how since the Industrial Revolution, we've kind of constructed a society that models itself in a way on the industrial machinery that we've created through that revolution. And so in the past, our culture was more in harmony with nature. Most people were farmers, were working with the cycles of nature, with biosystems. And then there was a transition where we started to work with more mechanical systems. So these mental infrastructures that kind of model themselves on the type of economy that we were creating in the Industrial Revolution actually started to build a concept of the individual that was different than it used to be. People thought of themselves in a kind of a role and without perhaps the kind of individual biography that we think of ourselves today. There's different conceptions of time. There's different conceptions of education. All of these things kind of created a sense of there being a future that we should move towards and change change ourselves to achieve, which didn't really exist in the past when society was more cyclical in nature rather mm-hmm. than linear. So this way of thinking kind of gradually built these infrastructures in our brain. And I think one of the things I'm trying to show is that Knowledge that these things are constructed is actually quite important because if they're constructed, then we can reconstruct them in different ways. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't good things about the Industrial Revolution and what it's brought us. There, Obviously, there are. But it's time, I think, to move on to a new way of doing things that would work with this much larger population that we have today. What, what uh, Herman Daly calls a full world instead of the empty world or a world that used to be more or less empty of human beings and our stuff. Now it's full of us and all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about focusing on that emptiness versus fullness. You also bring up the issue of how people feel empty, and we try to satisfy that emptiness with a materialistic approach and buying things or eating more, consuming more, when really we need more relationships and protection of our ecosystem and a connection to our natural world to bring us better health and a greater feeling of fullness. Yeah, exactly. And I think that we we get caught up in this idea of needing, and we do need material things, obviously, to meet our, our basic needs. We need food, we need shelter, and so on. So obviously people are focused on that. That's a big part of our life. It's very important. But it only provides happiness to a certain degree. I mean, if people are extremely poverty-stricken, they're happier if they get more material things, if they get a a good home, good clothes, good food, and so on. That makes people happier. But once you have those things, having more of them doesn't make you better. I mean, if you have a diet with 2,000 calories a day or 2,500 calories a day, that makes you feel good. But if it's 3,500 calories a day, that makes you sick. So more isn't always better. But we, we've kind of built this thinking that more is better. Mm-hmm. So uh, really, I think the sources of happiness, and there's more and more research on this, come from our relationships. So 
Is your marriage good? Is your work relationship good? A relationship to uh, in your workplace is your relationship with friends, with family, and with the natural environment. Are they they good? Do they make you happy? That's what really is really important. But mm-hmm. we don't have as much focus on that as we should, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I love the way you describe consumerism as the new opiate of the people. And yet, at the same time, you write that people are strongly influenced by social comparisons. Thus, the empty self is prey to powerful social forces and specific institutions given over to the pursuit of consumerism on which the economic system comes to depend for its survival. So we are hardwired, it seems, to compare ourselves with others, and yet it's that drive to consume more, to meet or match up with the Joneses, that drives the economic system, but is also leading us to a non-sustainable future. Yeah, and, and that's a big issue, and there's been some great writing on that lately, on the importance of comparison. So let's say um, if you're poor and everybody else is poor, you don't really think of yourself as poor. Right. I mean, you do, I guess, if you're if you're starving. But let's say you have, you know, your basic needs are met. But as soon as you start to see some people as very wealthy around you, you you kind of feel bad. Yeah. You're not as good as other people, or they have more stuff than you do. So that that seems to be part of our maybe even our genetic makeup, but definitely our cultural makeup. So when we have very unequal societies like we do in in the United States and Canada, I guess more so the U.S. than Canada, the U.K. is also highly unequal, but some societies are much more equal and there's much more a sense of happiness in those societies. So countries like like Scandinavian countries are good examples. Also, uh, quite a few countries in Latin America and, and also small island nations there's very high levels of happiness there, and yet there's a lower ecological footprint. Right. Well, let me jump through some of these chapters here because I've highlighted and underlined certain areas, and I know we won't have time to get to all of them, but mm-hmm. in Chapter 1, Everything, Everywhere, Always, you have a quote from Dostoevsky where you write, It is difficult to change gods. Tell me why you chose that quote. I don't know, it just, it just stood out for me. And, and there are a number of other quotes that talk about, that I, I was finding that we're talking about our, our system, our consumer system, our materialistic system as kind of an idol. Yeah. Uh, and that, that we focus on almost like a religion, a substitute religion. Yes. So, uh, I don't know, just that quote from Dostoevsky jumped out at me. And I think, you know, in a sense, over the, the last number of decades, century or so, We've kind of switched from a society that was quite religious or quite spiritual in its values. I mean, I know even when I was a kid, like everybody went to church. It was a big part of our life. That was a big part of our value system. And as I grew older, we became more materialistic and fewer and fewer and fewer people went to to churches. And, I, I you know, I realized that there are issues uh, and problems with religious organizations as well. But there was a kind of focus outside oneself. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, we kind of, in a sense, changed gods from this focus on the spiritual to more the material side of life. Mm-hmm. And my thinking is that 
in a way, we have to change gods again. It's interesting that, you know, I think we, we throw out a lot of religious thinking because of the, some abuses that have come from religion. Right. But we, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater to a certain extent because there were many of the, the religious values that are the core religious values, which sometimes we forget, that are really central to where we need to go. Mm-hmm. So our, our the sense of compassion, of love, of of uh, trustworthiness, of justice, and so on. These these fundamental human values, which really come to us from from religion, are sometimes set aside. And uh, you can even see a, a deification of greed and so on. Uh, that these things are actually good. And uh, so this been this value shift that I've seen just in my lifetime. And I think we have to rethink that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And you also bring up the issues of being resourceful and frugal, and yet society was redesigned to have more of a throwaway society where all of a sudden we were driving the economy if goods and services broke or we needed to replace them. And I've seen that shift in my lifetime as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I'm sure everybody has noticed that you know, if something breaks now, it doesn't pay to get it fixed because right. so, so many consumer goods are really, really cheap. Yeah. Whereas the labor to fix them, even if they can fix them, is fairly expensive. So we often just throw stuff away instead of fixing. But, you know, well, I'm 62 now and I can go look back to my childhood and there were shoe repair shops all over the place. There was, right. Uh, there was a sort of a different attitude towards these things. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's a big shift. Yeah. Well, let me take one moment, Paul, and remind our listeners that we are speaking with Mr. Paul Hanley. He has published two books and thousands of articles on the environment and agriculture. He has been an environmental columnist with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix since 1989. He's also the recipient of the Canadian Environment Award. And I met him in Regina, Saskatchewan, where he was speaking at the Organic Connections Conference. And he was speaking about his latest book titled Eleven. It refers refers to the 11 billion people who will share this planet by centuries end. And unlike a gloom and doom picture, which so many of us hear and see through the media, Mr. Hanley really gives us a vision of successful societies and shows us that we can indeed meet our needs. We can have 11 billion people on the planet and we can live sustainably. Well, I have to go back to the first chapter because that's where you talk about food specifically and this idea of how much fossil fuel we burn simply through the fast food network. And, of course, you're based in Canada, so your fast food outlet of choice is Tim Hortons, which was recently, I understand, bought out by Burger King, but that's a different topic. But you give this great analysis of people having to sit in line, how much time is wasted, how much fuel is wasted, driving, creating traffic, being idle in the lineup to wait for the food, the sedentary lifestyle, the low pay of the workers, the junk food, the ill health, the health care costs. And you have this great vicious cycle you call the cascading impacts of donuts and coffee. And I don't know how many of us really stop to think about the full effect of our fast food system and how it has really grown 
yet again another example of something that both of us have witnessed in our lifetime. Well, I remember when the first McDonald's was built down the street from my house. It was a novelty. And now you really can't turn a corner without seeing one of these fast food establishments. Yeah, that's true. And in Canada, we're kind of nuts about this Tim Hortons for some reason. It's become a kind of a cultural icon. I, I start the book by talking about how our Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, several years ago was actually scheduled to speak to assembled world leaders at the United Nations in New York, and he canceled to go to a an opening event for a Tim Hortons location, and which I was thought was, when I first saw that, I thought, holy cow. But yeah. of course, for him it made sense because it was aligning yourself with that brand, which is so popular here, people find it kind of humorous, but really do like it. And he was aligning himself with that brand politically, and much more important to him than, than the United Nations. Yeah. So it's it's quite interesting how we, we kind of become very brand-oriented. And I, at one point, I point out that the Tim Hortons chain in Canada uses a million barrels of oil a year to mm-hmm. produce its products, which is a pretty large proportion I think Canada uses something like 640 million barrels a year. So one chain, that much, is actually pretty substantial. Yeah. And, how you know, just how much energy goes into every aspect of this. But the interesting thing about this, this vicious circle thing, vicious cycle I talk about, this, the opposite's also true. There are virtuous cycles. So when we do positive things, they have the opposite kind of impact. They keep building on each other. So if you eat healthy food, your health care costs go down. I show, there's a kind of double pyramid image that I use in the book, which shows what, that foods with which are the best for people, like vegetables and fruits and so on, have the lowest ecological impact. And the most unhealthy foods have the highest. Mm-hmm. So when we do positive things like look after our own health, we're actually protecting the environment at the same time. It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, on page 18, you talk about the role of the feminist movement and how it was seen as a threat. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I think that what I was talking about is how different potential threats to the political economic order, they get kind of converted or turned to the benefit of the system. Mm -hmm. And this seems to happen again and again. So with the feminist movement... The idea that women could step out of the out of the home and take a fuller place in society and so on initially can be seen as a threat to the system, but actually got sort of subverted, and women became sucked into the consumer system. So instead of having, and I, I certainly agree with the idea of, of men and women sharing roles and so on, but now when I was a kid, mom was at home, dad was at work, but there was so much more time. Now, both of the couple are out working in the workplace, working harder and harder and harder to get more and more and more stuff. So was it really a step forward? Oh, certainly it was in certain ways, but there's this sense where it's kind of subverted into the consumer movement mm-hmm. and, and kind of diminishes the quality of our lives. Well, absolutely, and especially if you look at the food system where it used to be women were perhaps given a little bit more, even a woman working part-time had greater freedom in caring for her family. 
And what having women go into the workforce full-time did is it really created a demand for a lot of these quick and prepared foods. And I don't even know if it's justifiable demand because there are ways to work around that time crunch. But I, I've read where, you know, women at 4 o'clock are deciding what are they going to put on the table because largely even though women are in the workforce, they are still largely in control of what the family eats for dinner. So you talk about how housewives could now be drawn into the labor force en masse, increasing household disposable income and purchasing power. And, of course, there was a business to profit from that, especially with prepared foods. And you also talk about value-added foods, which I thought was so interesting because we talk a lot about that. For farmers to make more money, they can create a value-added product or a processed product. But really, the value is only for the person who's making the profit, that in processing the food, oftentimes we lose food value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of double-speak, value-added, because it actually just mainly removes value. When you process food, the nutrient levels go down. But the less processed it is, the more value it actually has. Right. So we think of it in the opposite way. Right. And, yeah, and as you say, it's it really, the value is just going to whoever's doing the processing and retailing and not to the food consumers or the farmers. Yeah. I think we should jump into a little bit of a discussion about agriculture because this is really at the heart of a healthy, happy society. And in Chapter 6, Welcome to Wonderland, you have a great quote from Colin Duncan, the central place in every culture should be occupied by agriculture. And if there's one place where I see such a great fear being driven with regard to population, it's around agriculture. And the big agribusinesses have really jumped on this and said, well, you know, we've got to use pesticides and we've got to use genetically modified crops, which many people don't realize are dependent on herbicides. And we've got into this uh, vicious cycle of weed resistance and then more herbicides. So tell me, how do we break this vicious cycle and help people understand the kind of agriculture that is truly sustainable? Well, I talk about something in the book, a kind of a principle, which is ecological function first. And I give a very interesting example, which is in the, the Los Plateau in, in China, which is one of the cradles of agriculture. And the Los Plateau is an area about the size of France, you know, very rich, low soils. But over the centuries, because it's a fairly dry, semi-arid kind of place, there's a gradual deterioration of the land base. And as that happened, people became more and more poverty-stricken. So they weren't really looking after the ecological functions of that land, and that resulted in poverty. Now, there's a very exciting project, and there's a great film about it, about, I think it's called Hope in a Time of Climate Change. And the filmmaker went to the Los Plateau and filmed extensively the ecological damage. And a project took place that involved local people and the national governments, and also some of the world organizations like the World Bank. And they financed major projects to reclaim these areas. The filmmaker goes back 10 years later, and he he shows these incredible pans and dissolves from the the former condition to the future condition, where people have completely restored these ecosystems through tree planting and terracing and this kind of thing. And 
it's just kind of amazing to see what can be done. So the potential, uh, the exciting thing about that was looking after ecosystems restored the economy of the area. So I'm not saying people were getting rich quick, but what they were finding was their incomes would increase, you know, by 50% or from a poverty-stricken level to a sustaining level mm-hmm. of of income and, and food quality and so on went up. So by looking after the ecological functions, they found that they were able to also restore the economic function. Mm-hmm. And so that that was very exciting. And I think there's many examples of that around the world. Mm-hmm. But we tend to think the other way. We have to look after the economy. That's our first priority. And, you know, if the ecology suffers, well, what can you do? Mm-hmm. But I, I think, in fact, the exact opposite is true. I agree. Yeah, you know, we are nearing the end of our conversation. I have to squeeze in one more piece because I remember this from your talk. In chapter 15, you have a, you start the chapter with a Chinese proverb. It says, if you are planning for a year, sow rice. If you are planning for a decade, plant trees. If you are planning for a lifetime, educate people. And what I'm seeing, at least here in the United States, is an increasing amount of curricula that is driven by private industry. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a reformed educational system that teaches this idea of true sustainability and compassion. Yeah, to me, this is the real key to everything. I have less faith in the political system to bring about change. Or you know, Some people talk about business bringing about change and so on. I have less faith in that than I do in the idea of people kind of really retraining themselves in a different way of thinking through participatory education models. So in the book, I talk about a few different efforts that are being made and focus in on one, which is called the Ruhi Institute. And the reason I'm excited by the Ruhi Institute, which is something that was actually founded in Colombia, a rural Colombia, but it's gone, gone worldwide now, is that it addresses... It, you know, it does does concern itself with people's material needs, but it also tries to balance that with uh, their spiritual needs, their spiritual values, kind of create a coherence between the material and the spiritual. Because I think a lot of development activity is about helping people who are poor become wealthier, and that's good, but do they then just become consumers like the 20% of people who are better off in the world and who are causing most of the ecological damage. So I think the the thing the Ryuhi Institute introduces is the idea of development that's really of, of a spiritual nature, and it addresses not just the poor, but also middle-income and rich people with the same kind of values program. Mm-hmm. Because I think much of the change that we need will not come from so much from the poor, but from the rich cutting down their consumption. I think about 20% of the people consume about 80% of the resources. So mm-hmm. it behooves those of us who are who have been so uh, fortunate to be born into countries that are quite well off to really take a look at ourselves and what we're doing and, and begin to cut back. And I think this sort of educational program that's being proposed is really 
a key to making that happen. Well, Mr. Hanley, we'll have to leave it at that. I want to recommend this book to everyone. Yan Martell, the author of The Life of Pi, says every concerned citizen of this planet needs to read this book. The book is titled Eleven, and the author is Paul Hanley, who we've been speaking with. I totally agree. I find that it is probably one of the most important reads that we can do this new year. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most importantly, I want to thank you, Mr. Hanley, for writing this terrific synthesis book. We do need this right now. We need this for the future. Thank you for being my guest. Well, thanks so much for having me. 